Good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, so take your Bibles, go to Luke, and there should be a sheet on the table. We'll go to the sheet here in a minute. But let's go to Luke's Gospel. So we're going to get started studying that Gospel today, and we'll spend the next few months studying Luke's Gospel. There'll be great joy in this. And I chose Luke on purpose, especially this time of the church here, Advent and Christmas, because you remember that Luke includes the uh, Annunciation, namely when Gabriel announces that, to Mary that she's going to have the baby, the Savior of the world. And Luke includes the birth account of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, when the shepherds come and uh, the angels sing the Gloria in Excelsis. And Luke has other very, very helpful things in his gospel. So look at Luke chapter 1, look at verse 46. Okay, this is after, after Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. And remember, Elizabeth has found out that she's pregnant and she's carrying John the Baptist. Mary's carrying the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, one quick thing before we read this, this text. It's very interesting that John the Baptist in utero, in utero, when he hears Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, greet Elizabeth. And most likely they're related. How exactly? We're not quite sure. We think maybe cousins. But when Mary greets Elizabeth, John the Baptist in utero leaps for joy in hearing this greeting from Mary. Now, this is very instructive, isn't it? The Bible, you know, teaches us many things in this. One in particular is what I've been talking about for the last few months. And I hope you've been paying attention. That our children, children, are they human beings? Can they believe? Yes, even in utero they can. This is why, this is why if, if uh, those of you, if you're still going to have children, some of you ladies, if you're still going to have kids, <laughs> some of you are shaking your heads no. But nonetheless, <laughs> if you know somebody who's expecting, um, you should encourage them to speak to the child in utero, to bless the child in utero, speak God's word to the child in utero, because they hear, they can hear. They just can't talk like we can right now. That's the difference, but they can hear. And do they believe? Yeah, because belief is trust. Do they trust their mom and dad? You better believe they do. In any event, that's very, very instructive for the times in which we live, in which, again, the genociders and the Malekians want to destroy life in the womb. Now, Mark, or pardon me, Luke 1, verse 46. So Mary has just greeted Elizabeth, and then she gives a song. Mary said, and by the way, this is parallel. If you know your Old Testament, this is parallel to another woman who is given a child Whereas before, she couldn't get pregnant. Remember her name, any of you? Hannah. Hannah couldn't get pregnant. And she prayed and prayed and prayed that she could get pregnant and have a boy. And you remember the, the priest on duty? He couldn't even tell when a woman was praying. He thought she was drunk. But nonetheless, the Lord gave Hannah a son. And remember his name? Samuel. And Hannah, after she is pregnant... With Samuel, she sings. And Mary now does the same thing. Let's check it out. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now that's also very instructive because the Virgin Mary knows that she's a sinner, and she knows that she needs to be saved, and she knows that this baby she's going to carry, or is carrying, is in fact the the Savior who's come not only to save the world, but her too. That's very instructive. Verse 48, 
for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. What is that? What's the humble state of his servant? Mary. She waits on the Lord for salvation. All faithful Israelites were always waiting for what? The Messiah to come. They always trusted the promise of God that Messiah would come. This is the humble state. That she's not going to justify herself. She will wait for Messiah to come and save them. Let's keep going. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. That's what? Sent the Savior. And I'm going to carry the Savior. Holy is his name. So we Lutherans, we give thanks to God for Mary, don't we? We give thanks to God for Mary for being the one to give birth to the Savior of the world. Any questions about that? All right, let's keep going. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generations. Remember, the, the fear of the Lord. Remember, read Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the, the beginning of wisdom. Remember your small catechism with the explanation of the commandments? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You see, when you fear God and not man, <clears throat> or let me say it differently, when you fear man instead of God, what do you do? You make bad choices. Don't you? If you fear what people think of you, you'll make bad choices. But if you fear God, different, different you understand this? Whole different ballgame. By the way, speaking of Mary, we'll get to it in a minute, we'll read it in a minute, but there's another reason why we give thanks to God for Mary. Because uh, you remember when, when Gabriel preached that sermon to her, that you're going, you, you the virgin, are going to give birth. The Holy Spirit's going to conceive this baby in your womb. You're going to give birth to the Messiah. What's her, what's her response? Faith. May it be to me just as you have said. She believes the words spoken to her, even though it goes against all senses, all experience, etc. Because virgins don't give birth to children. Right? When you, when you got pregnant, you weren't a virgin. Dittos, dittos, dittos. All of you ladies who've got children, okay? But she's a virgin, and she's going to, she, she's had a conceived by the Holy Spirit, this child, and she's going to give birth. And so she believes the, the sermon that's preached, despite all the experiences of the world and everything that she knows. Now that is very instructive when Mary does that. So Mary, I think Mary for lack of better terminology here, is the, one of the best examples in the Bible of how to live by faith, which is you trust the word of God despite everything that you see and experience. Let me give you an example of this. So you have a relative who dies. Let's say you have a loved one who dies. Uh, maybe it's a husband. Maybe it's a wife. Maybe it's a grandma or a grandpa. Maybe it's a sister or a brother. And you go to the funeral, and all you can see and feel is what? Death. Right? Corpse. If the person's not cremated, corpse is in the, in the uh, coffin, right? And all you see is the dead corpse. And then this preacher gets up and preaches the word of God, preaches our Lord's promise that that person, even though he or she is dead, yet he still or she lives because they believed in Jesus. And all you see and all you experience is death, and yet God speaks a word. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. He will live. And we're, we're given to trust that, like Mary. Even it goes against all of our... Have you ever seen anybody rise from the dead? Have any of your relatives been risen or raised from the dead? Mine haven't. 
So all of our experience, if we listen to science, now I'm tongue in cheek when I say that. Okay. If you listen to science, you can't believe the preaching of the resurrection. Samaria is the perfect example of how to live by faith. Now continuing with the text. Verse 51. He has performed my... And you'll notice here that who's doing the verbs in Mary's song here? The Lord's doing all the verbs. She gives all credit to the Lord. So he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich empty away. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Why are we reading this? This is peculiar to Luke's gospel, this song. What do we call it? The Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's what it is in Latin, Magnificat, magnifies. Okay. Now let's keep reading, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had showed her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the kid, and they were going to name him after his dad, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to his father. Remember, he can't speak because he didn't believe when the angel preached, you know, Elizabeth's going to have a child. How in the world can that be? Good grief, she's an old woman. She's been barren all of her life. That's impossible. I listen to science. Okay. And so he, he couldn't talk after that. God said, all right, you're not going to talk. I'll prove to you that I'll keep my word. You, sh you won't be able to talk. Can you imagine that? If that would happen to Kuhlman, I'd go insane if I couldn't talk. <laughs> so then they made signs to his father to find out what he, what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's amazement, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, People were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And now here again in Luke, you have another song. Mary's, now Zechariah's. Check it out. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And here's another unique aspect of Luke's gospel. Now remember, I gave you an assignment, and I know your lives are busy, but I'm, I have high expectations. I'm better than a college prof. I have higher expectations than college professors. <laughs> I asked you to read the entire Gospel of Luke all the way through in one sitting. And I don't know if that's high expectations if you're able to do it wonderful. But now, do it again this week. Do it again this week. And notice how often the Holy Spirit is referenced in Luke's Gospel. And so you had it earlier if you read it. Luke chapter 1. Now you've got it again. There's Holy Spirit galore in Luke's gospel. Now there's, a, there's many reasons for that. Let me just list one. In the Old Testament, God said that when Messiah came, that would be when the end of time began. When the last days begin, when Messiah comes, he will pour out his spirit on his people and the whole world. 
And lo and behold, so when Luke constantly emphasizes the Holy Spirit at work, in particular at this time, in the, in the birth of Jesus, the conception of Jesus, his birth, the uh, Zechariah prophesied by the Holy Spirit. By the way, remember, you had Anna and Simeon in the temple after Jesus is born, and, and uh, Simeon was told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. The point Luke is making with all the Holy Spirit references is what has now taken place, what is now upon us. The last days have begun. The Messianic times have begun. And the Holy Spirit, how do you know that? Because the Holy Spirit's at work all over the place. By the way, <laughs> Luke wrote what other book in the New Testament? Acts. Luke Acts at one time was one book. We split them in two. But Luke wrote both. Okay. And by the way, so when you read Acts chapter 2, what, what's the miracle of Acts chapter 2? Compare Acts chapter 2 with Luke chapter 2. Let's say it another way. What's the miracle of Luke 2? You've got it open. What's the miracle? Christ is born, right? And God now dwells among his people. And which particular person of the Trinity? The Son. Luke 2. The miracle of Luke 2 is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, has now taken flesh and dwells among his people to save them. What's the miracle of Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit now dwells among. So you have the second person of the Trinity in Luke 2. In Acts chapter 2, the third person of the Trinity, the miracle of Pentecost, is that the Holy Spirit is now poured out and now he dwells. And that's why the New Testament says that your bodies are what? You who are baptized and believe. Your body is a what? A shrine or a temple of the Holy Spirit. So God actually dwells with you. The third person of the Trinity actually dwells in you and with you as you live your life. So God isn't just stuck way up there in the sky somewhere. God actually is doing work on the earth through you in your vocations and your lives. That's a whole other Bible study, but I hope this is edifying for you. Let's go on. We're looking at the verse 68. Zechariah says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. And you'll notice he doesn't reference himself. Just like Mary, he's going to give praise and credit to God. So watch how this works, everybody. When you come to church and you confess your sin in general, and then the pastor turns around and says, I forgive you for Christ's sake. Christ commanded me to tell you you're forgiven. Okay. What do we do? We sing and we give glory to God. After you take communion, what do you do? You, you sing and praise and give glory to God. When God speaks, when God gives, what do you do? You give praise and glory to the one who gives. That's how it works. So, <laughs> what's the rhythm of worship? What's the rhythm of worship? The rhythm of worship is this. God speaks, God gives. We who receive his word and his gifts, we give thanks and praise. So the beginning of the service, God speaks in his absolution. We respond with, thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Remember the story of the old lady I told you? The old lady had a, had a pastor for three weeks. You know, the pastor went on vacation. Remember? And he had, they had the vacancy. The guy that served the church for three weeks in a row. Remember what he left out? He left out the confession and absolution. The third week, the old lady finally interrupted the guy. Pastor, this is the third week that you've not spoken the words of forgiveness to us. Now turn to page such and such and speak it. And so God speaks. He says you're forgiven for Christ's sake in the absolution. We respond with prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. 
Then we hear the word of the Lord from an Old Testament reading, an epistle, and the words of our Lord in the gospel. God speaks to us again through those three readings. And after each one, we respond with what? Prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. And then the pastor is going to preach either from all three or one or a combination of all three, you know? Sometimes I do a combo of all three. Sometimes it's, it's exclusively one text. Like today I bring in the epistle with the gospel. And even, so God speaks through his word and we respond with prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. And then you come to the Lord's Supper and Jesus speaks. He says, this bread is my body, this, this wine is my blood. It's given and shed for you. And then we respond with prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. This is the rhythm of worship. But what's the most important part of this rhythm? What God does and gives. Okay. Now back to this. Uh, what verse are we on here? 69? 69? He has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. House of his servant David is reminiscing of 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God promised King David that he would have a son who would reign forever. David would have a son who would be the Messiah. Now David thought it was Solomon. <laughs> Wrong. Wasn't Solomon. If you know Solomon's history, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, but also one of the most wicked men who ever lived. You can read about that in the Old Testament. He was, he was a saint and a sinner. Saint, I mean this in the way of forgiven for Christ's sake, the promised Messiah, but also he continued to sin. Uh, but nonetheless, God gave David a promise that he would have a son, and the son would be the Messiah, and his kingdom would reign forever. And Zechariah knows this, and he now knows it's being fulfilled at this very moment. Let's keep going. As he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies. Who are the enemies? Sin, death, the devil, the world. Those are the enemies. Those are your enemies. Let's keep going. And from the hand of all who hate us. Yeah, you got that right. The world hates you. Do you know that? <laughs> if you've been listening to me, you know that's true. The world hates you. I'm talking about the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world hates you. Like they hated John the Baptist. In any event, let's keep going. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. That would be the promise to send the Savior. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Remember, Abraham was given the promise that through his, his family line, the Savior would come. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. How do you serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness all your days? How do you do that? Yes, it's faith. And faith trusts what? Faith trusts that Christ has given you his holiness in exchange for your unholiness. That Christ has given you his righteousness in exchange for your unrighteousness. And that was done here. Here he takes your sin and gives you his holiness by faith. Yeah, that's So when you trust that, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 5. God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. In other words, it's a blessed exchange, it's a sweet swap, where Jesus takes our sin, our unrighteousness, in his body on the cross, answers for it, and in exchange, to those of us who believe, he gives us his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. So that when you believe that, you stand before God in holiness and righteousness. Yours? No, Christ's. <laughs> That's the kicker. 
So, you know, Brad, if, if you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and, and God says, well, Brad, why should I let you into heaven? And Brad says, well, you know, I've lived a pretty good life. I, I wasn't perfect, but I really tried hard. What's the Father going to say? See ya. Bye. Now, the opposite would be, Father, let me into heaven because Jesus died for me and he's given me his holiness and he's taken all my sin and all of its damnation. The Father says, come on in. Left the light on for you. Come on in. Okay. Let's keep reading. 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet. This is John the Baptist here. You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And that's precisely what John does. To give his people, now notice this, this is really important. To give his people knowledge of salvation, how? What's he saying? Through the forgiveness of their sins. Pastor, this is the third week, you haven't... Don't ever let a pastor take that away from you. Now, I want to say one thing quickly about this. The temptation for the church of today and the temptation for all the pastors is for the sake of time, for the sake of being relevant, and I could go on and on for the sake of. The pastor and the church is tempted to take away the preaching of the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. If, if, if the church does that, you are no longer church. The church exists for one reason and one reason only. It is to make sure that you are given and that you believe the forgiveness of sins that Jesus won for you on the cross. Now let me illustrate how this is being done, how this is being taken away. I've done this before, but it bears repeating. It's an extreme example, but it's happening very much so in the church, in the world today. So on many marquees outside of Christian churches today, the marquee says what? The welcoming, the welcoming place. Now, generally speaking, when they say the welcoming place, they mean we accept you as you are. Or this is a judgment-free zone. So any of you ladies who lift uh, weights or work out, you know, in these places, that's the famous slogan. This is a judgment-free zone. We're not going to judge you by how you look. So the church has adopted this model. Judgment-free zone. Which means what? We'll never say that you're a... Right. We'll never say you're a sinner. So if you're not a sinner, you don't need who? The Savior of sinners and his forgiveness, you see. Now, when that happens, when, when, when the truth about you being a sinner, he runs the show, when it's ignored, when that's ignored, then Jesus gets changed. They still talk Jesus, but not Savior of sinners and not forgiveness of sins. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, those people are no longer church. And I'm quite serious about this quite serious about this. This is why I'll never be a district president in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, because I would talk like this. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I'd never want to do that. Don't misunderstand me. I don't want to be in that position. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, you know, I got, I got some texts and stuff here because where we have a convention this summer and uh, there were people saying we want to nominate you and I said, no way, no way. I'm a free man here. I'm a free man. I can preach and teach the word of God freely. If I were elected to some bureaucratic position in the church, I'd be a slave on the plantation. I'd have to do what the plantation owner says. I, I'm not going to live that way because I know how that works. I've watched from the outside. I know what it's like. Anyway, that's putting the worst construction on it. Anyway, the point is this, is that where the forgiveness of sins is being preached and given, there you have what? Church. Zechariah knows this. Let's continue. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. 
And the child, this would be John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Kind of like parallel to his cousin Jesus. Jesus is born, John is born, and they don't show up until later. Now in Luke's gospel, you have one account when Jesus is how old? Twelve. Twelve. When Mary and Joseph lose him. And then they run back to Jerusalem. Where is he? Where is he? And they panic, you know. Boy, you lose your kid, you panic. Anyway. So here you've got two songs, Mary's, and now you have Zechariah's. Let's continue. And for the sake of time, let's go to verse 8 of chapter 2. Verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel says to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, that's the Messiah, that's the title, Christ is title, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And now, unique to Luke, here you have this. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, and now another hymn. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. The good news is what? What's the good news that the, the heavenly choir sings when Jesus is born? That there is peace. Only in the future? No, there's peace right now. And who's the peace with? With God. Man and God are now at peace through the baby born. So, is God, does God hate you? Is God at war with you? No. Because now there is peace with God through the baby Jesus Christ. This is the truth that is sung by the heavenly choir. And that's why we sing it in church. Now this is called the Gloria in Excelsis. That's the Latin. Okay. You get the Latin in the words. Glory to God in the highest. That's again unique to Luke. Now let's keep going. So Jesus is 40 days old now. Let's skip to verse 21. He's 40 days old. And he gets circumcised. And for the sake of time, let's go to verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, righteous and devout. What's that mean? Righteous and devout. He's a faither. <laughs> that's, that's all that means. It isn't why well, he quit smoking. No, he's a faither. That's what it means to be righteous. And, and faither means what? He's waiting and waiting for the promise of Messiah to come. And lo and behold... He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's the promise of the Savior. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. There's Holy Spirit again. Last days, fulfillment has come. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And now moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts and Mary and Joseph bring in this 40-day-old child named Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. And Simeon takes us in his arms and he praises God and he sings a hymn. And again, this is unique to Luke. What do we call this? What's the Latin? You remember? We sing it after we take communion. The nunc dimittis, which means now let us depart. That's what nunc dimittis means. Nunc, now, dimittis, depart. Now let us depart. And that's exactly what he says. Lord, verse 29, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. What's he saying there? Literally. 
I can now what? I can now die. How? In peace. We heard that with the angels announcing our Lord's birth, rejoicing in the birth. Peace on earth. And now he can die in peace. He knows that God loves him and is not at war with him. He can die in peace. The Savior has come. So why did we sing this? Why do we sing this after we take communion? Now, when I was a little boy, you know, things are really desperate in the church when they ask a little boy to be the organist at church. You know? And so here I am at Our Redeemer in Glenrock, and I've been an organist for all my life. You know, every once in a while I sneak over here and play, especially before Wednesday night catechesis. Sometimes the kids come in, and then they sneak in, and they, they get an earful. And they'll, and even, but you know things are desperate when they ask the, the third grader to play. Now, so, so since third grade on, and all through grade school and junior high, when I would, when I would accompany the congregation in singing the Nuke Dimittis, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. You know what I always thought that meant? Now it's time to go home and eat. Because <laughs> I couldn't wait for, for lunch, because mom had it ready. By the way, it was more than just go home and eat. There was you know, a little boy, you know how little boys are. Uh, I couldn't wait to get home and watch the independent television station out of Denver, Colorado, and watch All-Star Wrestling. <laughs> In any event, but why do we sing the Nuke Dimittis after we take the Lord's Supper? I'll tell you why. We sing it just as, just as Simeon held in his arms the 40-day-old Savior of the world, and he could then die in peace. So now we, we don't hold the 40-day-old baby Jesus in our arms. We are given to eat the crucified, risen, and ascended body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we can do what? We can now die in peace. This is why, brothers and sisters, many of you know this. You know exactly where I'm going with this. Your grandpa's ready to die. He's on his deathbed. Grandma calls pastor. Why? Pastor, you come and preach the gospel to my husband, and I want you to give him what before he dies? Communion. So that he can then die in peace. So Simeon held the baby. We are given to eat and drink his crucified, risen, and ascended body and blood. It actually won the salvation for us. And this is why, this is why the pastor is called when a person's about ready to die. Any questions about that? So these songs are all peculiar or particular to who? To Luke. Only Luke records these things. Now let's go and look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Luke 2, 1 and 2. Very interesting what Luke records here. Check it out. Names that the kids have trouble saying during Christmas program. And sometimes, sometimes they, they're, they pastor, how do you pronounce these names? Look at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while, and here's the name that no one could pronounce, so let's learn it today. Quirinius, say it with me, Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now here again, particular to Luke, is he mentions historical, factual people. So like the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, a real-life historical governor of Judea. And so Luke does this as well. He records real people's names. Now, a side note on this. This Quirinius, the Syria of governor, 
for generations, there was no evidence of this man existing. And so the critics of Christianity would say, oh, here we go. Here's, the, here's a classic example that we all know that Christianity is a fraud because there's no evidence that there was ever a Quirinius as governor of, and lo and behold, within the last 50 years, archeology span has now discovered that he was a real life person and actually was governor. He really lived. <laughs> and I bring this up for the reason, because remember last week I brought up what? What did I bring up at the end last week? Do you remember? The, one of the biggest false religions and cults in the world, Mormonism. Let me say something about this. When you read the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, and the Bible mentions a name or the Bible mentions a place, archaeologically, they've all been found. There is evidence that Jericho actually existed, that there were actually Canaanites and Philistines, right? Okay? Now, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon talks about a civilization in Central America and North America and mentions all kinds of places and all kinds of peoples. Has any of that been archaeologically discovered? Nope. Did you know that? Oh. Uh, now, so why in the world would Mormons believe in a Book of Mormon that teaches something that is not historically true? Because you'd think they'd, they'd have some kind of common sense. I'll tell you why they believe it. And how many of you have had Mormon missionaries knock on your door? And how many of you have let them in? And how many of you have talked to them? Any of you let them in and talk to them? Okay, John has. Anybody? Dorothy has. Now, the, one of the common themes, if you didn't hear this, well, they weren't, they weren't being faithful Mormons. If you didn't hear this, they will give you their testimony that Mormonism is the only true church on the earth and that Joseph Smith is truly God's prophet. And they will tell you why they believe that Mormonism is the only true church and that Joseph Smith is God's prophet. What's the answer? Do you know, John? Not exactly. Well, you want to guess? Did they tell you? I'm putting you on the spot, so pardon me. They have a burning in the bosom. That is to say, they know. They know there is, there is no historical accuracy in anything that is taught in, by Mormons. And so if you can't prove things objectively, then you have to turn to subjectivity, feelings. Remember, I've talked about this, where people let feelings determine all truth, and that is Mormonism. They have a burning in the bosom, and their goal is despite all the objective facts, they want you to have some kind of subjective experience called the burning in the bosom, which will then convince you that Mormonism is the only true religion on earth, in fact, the only church, and that Joseph Smith is his prophet. Does that sound familiar? What other religion in the world talks the same way? Very similar. Islam. I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you investigate all the things that uh, uh, Muhammad talks about in his you know, converting all the fanciful sayings, it's not fact at all. I don't want to get into that. This is a whole other Bible study, but it's a very similar thing to Mormons. So one final point on this. <clears throat> Here we learn once again that you cannot let feelings determine truth. Now, are we against feelings? No, we're not. We're all for feelings. And I'll, I'll give you an example. There are times, again, if you're watching Kuhlman up front sometimes, and when we're singing a hymn, 
Or if there's some part of the service, it hits me like a ton of bricks and the tears are coming out of my eyes. That Jesus really did this for me? It's just incredible how it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. But what has caused the emotion? The objective fact and the objective history of our Lord Jesus Christ, etc. So we're not against feelings. But feelings are a result of the truth. Or if there's an untruth, but uh, properly speaking, you understand what I'm talking about. Any questions about that? All right, so Luke records these historic people. Let's go to Luke 3, verse 1. Here's another example. In the 15th year, now why do you have to say that? He didn't, but he does. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius and Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. This is unique of Luke. He is very keen to make sure that you know that the events that he records are actual history with actual historical people. So that when you hear about this Jesus, yeah, he's a real life person. That he actually did die on the cross. That he actually really did rise from the dead. And he actually ascended into heaven. Which again, ascension is a unique story told by Luke as well. The ascension. At the end of Luke's gospel, the beginning of the book of Acts. Okay, so on the sheet, I've answered all the questions, haven't I? What do these distinctive features tell us about Luke? Okay, I've told you that. There are three other distinctive features. Go to Luke 2 again, 41 to 52. Luke 2, 41 to 52. This is unique to Luke's gospel. Matthew doesn't record it. Mark doesn't. John doesn't either. You know the story. I hinted at it earlier. Check it out. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover when he was 12 years old. Matthew doesn't record this. Mark doesn't. John doesn't. So 12 years old. Does that mean it's untrue? No. But Luke adds something that the others didn't. That's true. Verse 43, after the feast is over, his parents, they're going home. The boy Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem, and they're unaware of it. Now today they'd be arrested for neglect. <laughs> but you see, why, why would they leave him? Because all the relatives took care of each other. So he must be with some of the other relatives. No big deal. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. <coughs> they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. <laughs> and everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then Jesus says, the 12-year-old Jesus, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And they didn't understand what he was saying to them. And then what's he do? He goes down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grows in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men. One point on this that I want to call your attention to. He was obedient to them. What's he doing there? Is he just simply doing that for himself? 
He's not. You see, Jesus, as I told the Sunday school opening today, remember I asked the question to all of you, what's the difference between Jesus and us as human beings? What's the difference? Jesus Yay! never, he never sinned. And so Jesus here keeps which commandment? Fourth. He honors Mary and Joseph, and he's obedient to them, and he goes back home to Nazareth with them. So he keeps the fourth commandment perfectly for us and for our salvation. Here's the point. Two ways that Jesus saves us in this particular context with regard to the Ten Commandments. See, the Ten Commandments show us our sin. So what does she, And they condemn us. So what does Jesus do? I'll keep the commandments for you in your place. Here's an example. Secondly, he then on the cross takes all of the punishment of our sin in his body and answers for it. So we call that his active and passive righteousness. Passively, he suffers for our sin and our damnation. Actively, he keeps the commandments perfectly for us in our place. All right, now there's one other thing I want to get to you here. Look, go to Luke 9 real quickly. Luke 9. We're not going to read all those chapters because you've been reading those, you know, last week and you're going to read it again this week. But just look at verse 51. Luke 9, 51. Again, unique to Luke. Luke 9, 51. As the time approached for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, where he's going to do what? A good Friday. And so from this point on now in Luke's gospel, Jesus is moving towards what? This. And resolutely means nothing's going to stop him. Watch how that works. You read the rest of those chapters, you'll see how this works. He's going to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to keep him away from it. Now look at Luke 24. Again, unique to Luke. And this is where we'll quit today. Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. <clears throat> We're going to have a lot of fun with this. So when Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany... He lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the account of our Lord's ascension. So in, when the creed says that he ascended, that's what the Bible teaches. Now keep in mind, in Matthew, in Matthew's ending... Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And then he says what? Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Did you hear that? Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. So, does that, when Jesus ascended here in Luke's gospel, it says he was taken to heaven, does that mean he left and is gone? Can't be, because he says, I will be with you to the end of the age in Matthew's gospel. So what does the ascension mean? Well, look at Acts, Acts 1. Keep your finger in Luke 24, but look at Acts 1 real quickly. <laughs> Acts 1. Look at verse 10. No, 9, pardon me, 9. Acts 1, verse 9. After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. That's the ascension. So here's what the ascension means. It doesn't mean that Jesus left and is gone. 
It means that he is hidden from our sight. So uh, let me illustrate this for you. Pretend I'm Jesus, the ascended Jesus. All right, can you hear me? Yes, do you see me? Am I still with you in this building? See, that's the ascension. Now, one other thing about the ascension, go back to Luke 24. You notice he lifts up his hands and he, and as he is blessing, and so we have this statue of Jesus here at Trinity. And if you want the history of what happened, how that got restored, I think you can talk to Denny. Denny can tell you the history. You know, when, when the church remodeled, that statue of Jesus that we now see stuck in the northwest corner of the church, I think that, yeah, northwest, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm challenged directionally. Um, that used to be on the altar a long time ago. Remember, Trinity used to have the high white altar with the gold trim, and Jesus was front and center on the altar. And what are his hands doing? It's pass interference. <laughs> well, Notre Dame has touchdown Jesus. We've got, no, he's, this is the ascended Jesus, the ascending Jesus. Now, there's a reason why Lutherans, Emmanuel Lewisville, same thing. All these Lutheran country churches, all in the Midwest, Iowa, Kansas, the Dakotas, Nebraska, Montana, all of them had these altars with the ascending Jesus on them. Why? So that you know when you come to church, who's there? Jesus is actually there. And just as he blessed these people then, he still continues to bless us. So the ascended Jesus means that he is still among us, blessing us through his word. And that's why the guts of the service is his word. As you hear his word, he's blessing you. Now, one final thing on this. Do you have any questions about that? I hope that's edifying for you. All right, so the next time we remodel, we might want to rethink where we want to put that statue. I'm just saying, you don't have to, but you might want to, yeah, well, why, why don't we put it back where it used to be? Now, does, now, don't misunderstand, it doesn't have to be. But knowing what the ascension is, by the way, read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He talks about the ascended Jesus. And just to paraphrase, just to paraphrase Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the ascension of Jesus, Paul says that Jesus now reigns over all. He is the ascended king of the universe. For what reason? To take care of his church. And he gives gifts to his church. And Paul lists those in Ephesians. In any event. Any questions about this? All right, so we've rejoiced in some of the unique things in Luke's gospel. And so next week we'll, uh, we'll tackle part two. Okay, But again, your assignment is... Read it all the way through in one sitting. Let's pray.